We're in a tremendous letter, Letters That Burn. Tonight we're in second chapter of 1 Peter, and uh, we're going to look at some really, really powerful truths about how we're to live, what God the Holy Ghost is doing in our lives, and it's going to feed you. It fed me getting ready for it, and I'm going to love teaching it, and I know you're going to love hearing it. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we are approaching now the sacred word of God. No other book like it in the whole world. This is your word. And Lord, you gave it to us, preserved it for us, protected it from enemies. And you have kept it for us today. Now we open up this letter from your apostle Peter. And we pray that, Lord, it'll feed us and strengthen us and open our eyes and help us to walk in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Can you lift your hands and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive the word of God tonight in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, letters that burn, get ready. Amen. Now, last time we finished chapter one and talking about the power and the beauty of God's word. If you're here very long, you know I love God's word. God made me, caused me to love God's word. I didn't love it before I was saved, that's for sure, but I love it now. How about you? Amen. Amen. Now remember, Peter is writing to a church world uh, where uh, life has become dangerous for all believers. Very unlike where we are tonight, even though it is definitely getting worse in the West, in America. Every day, Christians in the first century, in Peter's time, woke up wondering, will I go to sleep tonight? Will I be in prison today? Will I be separated from my family today? Uh, am I going to be arrested and whipped, uh, tortured, because I named the name of Christ? I wonder how many people would stay in church if our culture went that direction this week. Amen? Amen. I like to think I would, but you know what? By the grace of God, I go. It takes great courage. Now, I've told you that the wicked Roman uh, Emperor Nero had unleashed intense persecution. He was a, he was a devil, walking, talking devil, Nero. Uh, he's the one that orchestrated the martyrdom, the murder of Peter and Paul. I would not want that on my resume when I face God. That I'm the one that killed the two greatest men on the planet. But he did. In Peter's second letter, he's going to tell his readers, guess what? Shortly, I must die and leave this body. So he's writing. He knew his home going was near. And he's writing. I'm letting you know, and I want to remind you of some things, because soon they're going to kill me. But he wrote it with a steady hand trusting Christ. And tradition tells us they hung him upside down on a cross because he refused to be hung right side up because he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord. So that's the way Peter left the planet. Peter's first letter is written against the backdrop of a rapidly changing world. Everything around him is changing, particularly in the religious world, because um, Christianity, or rather Judaism, uh, Old Testament Judaism, the 
uh, Moses' way of doing things, being under the Mosaic law, is gone. And before long, the temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be attacked by the Romans. Over a million Jews are going to be killed. That's only a few years away when Peter writes this. It's to the persecuted and troubled believers, these two letters. And he writes next in chapter 2 about their needful separation. Now, when I say separation, what I'm talking about is sanctification. Can we say sanctification? Sanctification. Justification. Justification. What's justification? Just as if you never did it. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit to set us apart from the world, to remove us from the stain and the corruption of the world. And it's a lifelong process. It begins as soon as you are saved, and it's called sanctification. But it's setting apart, just being set apart from the sin and the corruption of this evil world. Anybody arguing tonight that this world isn't sinful or corrupt or these days crazy, right? Now, chapter two begins with the exhortation to lay aside the troublesome old nature and his deeds. Paul loved that phrase, lay aside. Um, Writer of Hebrews used it. Let us lay aside. Uh, the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us lay it aside. It's the idea of taking off a garment and just laying it down. Let us lay it aside and walk away and leave it there. So look at verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside. Now he's going to name some things. Here we go. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking or bad talk. Think about Lazarus when he came out of that tomb. He came out of the tomb resurrected from the dead, but he was still wrapped in grave clothes. And and what was the instruction Jesus gave as soon as he emerged from that tomb after being dead four days? Jesus said, loose him and let him go. So the, and they undid the grave clothes so that he was free to move around. Uh, In the same way, when we're saved, Jesus says that about us and over us, not casting demons out of us. If you're born again, there's no demons possessing you. But it's talking about laying aside some things. All right. So uh, he starts with malice. Now you're going to notice there's four inward sins and one outward. The four inward, again, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. Malice. What's malice? Malice has to do with an evil disposition. Uh, it's, it's the bent that we all have towards sin. Have you ever noticed nobody had to teach you how to sin? Nobody had to teach me. Have you ever noticed when you're raising a, a child from birth on up, nobody has to teach them how to do wrong. They do it all on their own. They won't, don't want you touching their toys. They don't, they don't want you not giving them candy. Uh, they will sass you. They will yell at you. They will throw temper tantrums. They are not by nature godly. Can I have an amen here? Amen. Right? So what are we called to do as parents? Teach them to do right because they normally do wrong because they're born with a fallen nature. So malice is, is that 
bent towards sin that is characteristic of every fallen nature. And everyone in here, including myself, were born with a fallen nature that needed to be born again. Guile is from a Greek word meaning to bait or a snare. And it's talking about being deceitful. Let us lay aside being deceitful. Let's lay aside telling lies. Let's lay aside being duplicitous. Let's lay aside, let's lay aside being dishonest. Lay it aside. Because that's guile. Remember when Jesus said this about Philip? He said about Philip, there's a man with no guile. What was he talking about? Philip was a straight shooter. What he, what he thought, he said. What he meant, he said it. He was not duplicitous. Uh, you, what you saw is what you got. And Jesus said, there's a man with no guile. Hypocrisy is the idea of an actor putting on a, a show on a stage. All right? Jesus hated hypocrisy. Hypocrites are the only ones that ever came under his blistering verbiage. Uh, the Pharisees, for instance, they were massive hypocrites. Jesus said, do what they do, but, but don't follow them because they don't lift one finger to, to do what they're telling you to do. That was the Pharisees. And Jesus, over and over again, let them have it. He was not politically correct. No, Jesus, Jesus said it. All right? So uh, Jesus hated hypocrisy. Uh, and Peter had often heard him personally denouncing the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and so on and so forth. So Peter said, lay it aside. Don't, don't be, don't be a, a fake. Don't be fake. All right? Be authentic. Be real. Be who you are. Don't try to be somebody else. Nobody can be you better than you. All right? So hypocrites. Envy. We all know what that is. It refers to the feeling of ill will produced in the unregenerate heart uh, upon hearing of somebody else's promotion or prosperity. <laughs> your, be your best friend uh, strikes it rich and, and makes millions of dollars. It's so hard to go, wow, way to go. And inside you're thinking, you stinking rat. Why not me? <laughs> right? Envy. Envy and jealousy are twins. Envy is bothered about somebody else's success. But jealousy wants their success for itself. All right? So we got to learn. You want to know how to get rid of jealousy? Easy. I'm going to tell you how to get rid of jealousy. To get rid of jealousy, look at the person you're jealous of and compliment them. Oh, that went over big. Amen, Pastor Jen. That was a major hit right there. I, I felt it connect. Now just say, way to go. If they go out and they get some incredible job uh, or whatever, um, marry the, the, the girl or the guy that you thought you would when you were in high school. Say, way to go. All right. Because you will defuse the jealousy. And you may find in a few years when you see who they ended up marrying, you may go, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> Glory to God. Then here comes the outward sin. So here they are, malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy. Peter said, just lay them down. Lay them down, lay them aside. 
be done with them. And then the outward sin, evil speaking, uh, which comes from a Greek word meaning to speak down uh, someone. You're, you're talking them down. To defame or slander them. Peter says, separate yourself from this. Don't defame or slander or, or talk someone down. Don't try to destroy them with words. Don't try to ruin their reputation. Okay? That's evil speaking. Lay it aside. Lay it aside as children of God. Lay it aside. He then describes the characteristics of our new life in Christ. And he describes it, now watch this, as separation by new birth from the old life. How are we separated from the old life? By a New Year's resolution? No. By being born again. A brand new birth. We are born into another world. He says, as newborn babes, verse 2 and 3, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have, isn't this interesting, he said, tasted that the Lord is gracious. Isn't that interesting? He uses a sense, the, the taste sense, to describe the goodness of God. He's so good you can taste it. He's so good that your spiritual palate can taste it. How many of you can say, the Lord is good. I, blessed is the Lord. Blessed is the Lord. And, and I, 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 I can taste his goodness. One of the first signs of a truly born again person, mark it down, is they have a strong desire for the nourishing word of God. Don't tell me you're saved if you have no desire for the word. The greatest need for a newborn baby is care and nourishment so that it can grow. All right. Therefore, our local churches should be nurseries. Yeah, I've often said the church is a hospital for sinners and, and, and it's a watering hole for saints. It's a nursery. Why are you here tonight? I'm feeding you the good word of God. I'm feeding you. And you wouldn't be here if you weren't hungry for it, right? But, but we're hungry for it. And every day, are we not hungry for it? Especially the more you eat that word, the more of the word you want. You ever notice that? One of the first signs of new Christians being rightly fed is they grow. They spiritually grow. He said that you may grow thereby. How do we grow? By hearing the word of God and applying it to life. This person has tasted that the Lord is gracious. They've experienced the goodness of God and they're growing in their new life, growing. The spiritual growth never stops. We are to grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. How do you do it? By that good word of God. That's why you need to be real picky about what church you go to, who you listen to online. A lot of wackos out there. There's a lot of false teachers out there. So we have separation by birth. I am born again and I get a whole new set of tastes and desires for the Lord, his word, prayer, fellowship with his people. Okay. Next, we see separation by belief from the old life. Look at verse four. Coming to him as to a living stone. Wow. So he's got tasting the Lord 
and seeing that he is good. And now he's comparing him to a stone that's alive. A living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God. Chosen by God and precious. Peter used an illustration calling Jesus a living stone. The Greek word for living is zoe. Zoe. And it refers to life in all of its forms. Zoology. All right. Zygote. There's all kinds of English words that come from this zoe in Greek. From the life of God himself down to life of the most insignificant thing. That's zoe. Anything that's alive. Zoe. And it's used of resurrection life and eternal life. Because until you and I came to Christ, we were not alive. Our hearts were beating. So physically, yes. But spiritually, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. Dead. As dead as anything ever was. There was no zoe in you. You were dead. And yet, he quickened you. You know what I pray for on on, uh, particularly Sundays? When I'm praying for Sunday, I say, Lord, by your grace, in those two services tomorrow, please raise somebody from the dead. Raise them from the dead. What do you mean, Pastor? What I mean is, if they're not saved, there's no zoe. There's no life. If they were to die without Christ, they would answer for their sins, which we're going to see in a moment. And that would be it, judgment. So I pray, Lord, as you raise Lazarus physically, can you raise somebody from the dead this Sunday? Raise them from the spiritual dead. Because when they come to Christ, they go from death to zoe, life. Amen. Jesus says, Peter... Uh, Jesus says Peter is a living stone. Jesus is a living stone comprising both resurrection and eternal life in himself. He that has the son has life. That's what Jesus said. If you've got the son, you've got Zoe. Now, though a stone is not a living thing in the natural, this stone, capital S, Jesus is alive. How many of you are so thankful the living stone came and touched you and gave you Zoe? I'll give you an illustration. When David Livingstone, that was really his name, Livingstone. David Livingstone, considered the greatest missionary in the history of Christendom. That's what a lot of people, aside from Paul, I, I can't say that um, unless you exclude Paul. But David Livingstone the greatest of missionaries, died alone in Africa. He was found kneeling beside his bed. He had been praying when Jesus said, come on. Those natives he had reached, and there were many of them. Now, don't grimace until you hear the whole thing. But they cut out his heart. And they buried it in his beloved Africa, where he was such a great missionary. Then they handed his body over to the British authorities because he came from England. It was transported back to England and laid to rest in Westminster Abbey. Now, 
a brass plate in the floor marks the spot. And a text tells the tale. Here's what it says. Other sheep have I which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. That was his epitaph. But he also had another one. One of Britain's periodicals, secular periodicals, said it best. Across its front page, in banner headlines, it read, Granite may crumble, but this is living stone. Such was the missionary, what a name, Livingstone, who followed the living stone and was raised to life by the living stone and took that living stone life to all those African natives who came to Christ because of him. Now, next we see that the stone, the living stone is discarded. He says, rejected indeed by men. Rejected comes from a Greek word meaning to reject as a result of disapproval. I reject you because I disapprove of you. This is exactly what the religious leaders did with Jesus. They disapproved of him. John writes in the gospel, you know this, but it's great to read because it's true. He came to his own. That's talking about the Jew, his own descendants of Abraham and his own did not receive him. They disapproved of him. He was disapproved of. They disapproved of him. And he goes on to write, yet the good news is, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So watch this, everybody. They might as well have tried to get rid of the son. For Peter writes that Jesus was chosen by God and precious. Chosen by God. So it matters so very much what you do with Jesus. If you disapprove of him, you're going to die in your sins. If you approve of him and receive him, you're going to receive Zoe, life, eternal. Eternal. Peter brings the church into the picture next. Verse 5, you also, everybody say that means me. Because now from, he's going from talking about Jesus to talking about you and me. Now this is where it gets really strong. You also, turn to your neighbor and say, it's talking about you. Come on, I want you to get this. It's talking about you. Watch this now. You also as living stones. Now he went from Jesus being a living stone to you being, we could say you're a chip off the old block. Right? You as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So we can say we're bricks, we're stones, we're, every one of us is crucial to the house. The house that is being built by God. And what for? A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now here's our why. You heard me on Sunday. Here, here again is another look at our why. Here it is. Why are we here? He's building us up a spiritual house. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. 
Not only is Jesus a living stone, he has made us to be living stones alongside him. We're living stones in a spiritual house that God is building. Each one of us is placed right where the master wants us. Not only are we living stones, we're also a part of a brand new priesthood called a holy priesthood. Now I want you to say with me, I'm a priest. How many of you feel like a priest? But we are a priest. Let God be true and every man a liar. You also a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, entrance into the priesthood was controlled by the Mosaic uh, Levitical Code. Only the sons of Levi could be a part of the priesthood. But when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was ripped in half. What was God saying? The old Mosaic way is gone. I'm opening up a whole new priesthood. All right? And... In doing so, God was declaring that the Old Testament system was swept away. It's gone. The cross has rendered the entire Old Testament system of sacrifices null and void. Now watch carefully now. Here's the thing. People want to know how much of the Old Testament is relevant to the New Testament. What do we follow in the Old and what don't we? The Old Testament Mosaic Law was was comprised of three different parts, uh, the ceremonial law, civic law, and moral law, okay? Ceremonial law, all the feasts, uh, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of this, Feast of that, Feast of the other, Feast of Passover, uh, that was the ceremonial law. The civic law was the code of law God gave Moses for the children of Israel to live under civic in a civic sense, um, until it was all abolished. And they were no longer a nation living under Moses. So the civic law went away. The ceremonial law went away. I I like studying the various feasts and, and whatnot, but I don't need to partake of them. I like knowing what they were about. That's cool, because that's part of the Word of God. But I don't need them. I'm not supposed to do them. Because it's all passed away. Say with me, it passed away. Yeah, passed away. Passover, all of that. I love knowing what it meant, and I preach on it. But but I don't get all the stuff out and unleavened bread and all of that and and partake of the Feast of Passover, because my Passover is Jesus. It's all gone. The only thing remaining from the Mosaic law is the moral law. That remains. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. The Ten Commandments. The moral law is relevant. And you will note in your Bible study that the moral law is all carried over into the New Testament. But Paul said, don't let anybody judge you according to feasts or new moons and all this other stuff. Don't let them judge you for not doing that. If you're a believer, you don't need to be doing that. The moral law has been carried over, and it's good. Okay, But the other two, ceremonial and civic, gone. That's free. That's not in my notes. Okay. All right? So... Let's move along. Uh, When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was ripped in half. He's now our great high priest, enthroned forever in heaven. 
And all of his blood-bought people are ordained of God to function as priests down here. So says Peter, the church is the new priesthood. And what is our purpose as priests? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. Everybody say spiritual sacrifices? Well, what is that? How about sacrifice of praise? Amen? When we come together and we worship God and praise him, that's a spiritual sacrifice. And we do that as priests unto the Lord now. Praying in Jesus' name, that's a spiritual sacrifice. Interceding, that's a spiritual sacrifice. And we are called to offer up as New Testament priests spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. So you are a priest. You worship God tonight, didn't you? Did you worship God tonight? That was a part of your priesthood. Peter says they're acceptable to God. And the word acceptable means very favorably accepted. God loves it when we worship him. Jesus Christ blazed a trail for us to enter into the throne room of the universe. Amen. Now next, Peter addresses the cornerstone. So you got the living stone and then the cornerstone. Verse 6, Therefore it's also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now that's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. I'll read it. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, Isaiah wrote that in a time when the whole world seemed to be coming apart, like we feel right now in our own country. The northern kingdom Israel was about to be taken captive by the Assyrians. And Isaiah was watching it happen. They would soon be strangers in a strange land, of a strange language, strange customs, and strange gods. Isaiah knows that it's imminent. And yet, he predicts the coming of a cornerstone. God's coming plan of Messiah. He'd be the cornerstone of a brand new foundation. The church. Who's our cornerstone? Jesus. Who's our foundation? Jesus. For no other foundation can be laid than that which is already laid. 1 Corinthians 3, which is Jesus Christ. My foundation in life is Jesus. My cornerstone is Jesus. My hope is Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. Jesus. He's my teacher. He's my guide. He's my leader. He's my healer. He's my provider. He's my all in all. Jesus. He's my banner. He's my shepherd. He's my all in all. Jesus. He's who I worship every single day. Jesus. He said, the cornerstone that's coming is going to bring joy to some, but judgment to others. Watch this. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Can you say he's precious to you tonight? Now watch this. To you who believe, he is precious, meaning worthy of high honor, inexpressibly valuable. That's what precious means. You can tell a lot about a person by what they hold dear. 
You ever notice that? With some, it's money. Others, power. Others, it's another person. Everybody, everybody here tonight, everybody watching, everybody listening later by radio, listen, let me tell you something about you. You've got a treasure. There's not a human being alive that doesn't have a treasure. Something your heart has decided to hold dear. Worth sacrificing for. Worth living for. Worth doing whatever it takes to obtain it. Money, fame, relationships, whatever it may be, you've got a treasure. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Peter is saying, for those of us who believe, he's the one who is precious to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How many of you hold him dear? Right? Listen to Paul. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of everything and everything I've lost to know him better, I consider rubbish. Nothing can be compared to the precious cornerstone. Amen. But watch verse 8. And a stone of stumbling. Uh-oh. And a rock of offense. Totally different response to Christ now. To the cornerstone. They stumble, says Peter, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now watch this. If you're not overtaken by Christ in this life, you will be overtaken by judgment. Can I just be real tonight? Shoot straight. If you're not overtaken by Christ, you're going to be overtaken by something. Something overtakes everybody. Something dominates everybody's day. And if you're not overtaken by Christ, the day's going to come, you're going to be overtaken by judgment. There is a judgment coming. A lot of our preachers today, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to mention it because they're afraid that money will get up and walk out. But I've learned if you tell it like it is, money will walk in. Because people want to hear and they want to support the word of God. I'm not here to tickle ears. If you want your ears tickled, you're in the wrong place. Because I'm going to tell you what it says. All right? So here's the deal. If you're not overtaken by Christ, one day you're going to be overtaken by judgment. Uh, and, and it's going to be a fierce judgment. When everything you've ever done or said is going to be laid bare before you. And I, I, the only thing I can imagine is God will play a video. Or it'll flash before you in a microsecond's time. You know, they say when you're dying, your life flashes before you. Okay? If Jesus, if you're not overtaken by Jesus and come to him, turn to him, then one day you'll face God and you'll have to be your own attorney. And you're no good. There's only one attorney that can spring you. Our advocate, Jesus. And here's the deal. You'll face God and, and you will have to answer. And I would have had to answer for all my sin. What, all of them. Or I can turn to Christ, give him my sin, turn to him as my savior. And, when, and, and I won't answer for one of them because he answered for it 
for me on the cross. All of my sin was laid on him. And he bore the iniquity of us all. Okay? And so when you come to that advocate, Jesus Christ, the best attorney you'll ever have, and he, he'll, he'll deliver you pro bono. He shed his own blood for you. He'll deliver you. He'll, he'll take your sin. And if you turn to him in faith, then all of your sin is washed away by the precious shed blood of Jesus who bled and died on the cross for me and for you. And so when we face God, we're not going to answer for our sin. God will say, what'd you do with Jesus? I believed in him. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But if you got to be your own attorney and answer for your own sin, it's not going to go well. It will not go well for you. He's a stone of stumbling to some. Um, We've all heard the nautical saying, dashed against the rocks, referring to a shipwreck. Uh, But on Judgment Day, every rejecter of Jesus will be dashed against the rock. Stone of stumbling. He's a stone of stumbling. That indicates a loose stone lying in somebody's path that caused them to trip and fall. Okay? The phrase means also to cut against. So Peter is using it to describe the seriousness of rejecting Christ. See, some people, it's good news when they hear the gospel. Oh, then I want him. That's the way it was with me in juvenile home when I was 16. But for some, they don't want to hear it. They trip over it as soon as they hear it. He's a stone of stumbling. They trip over it. They resent it. Don't mess with my stuff. Don't tell me I'm in sin. Don't, don't, Don't cramp my style. And you trip over him. So it's a choice. He's either precious or he's a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. Word rock is Petra, a ledge rising out of the ground. And the word offense is scandalon, which is scandal. You hear about Christ and it scandalizes you. Do you know that in the last few months I've had people get right up and storm out of the service because of I simply quoted a Bible verse? Why they do that? They tripped. The word scandalized them. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. Somebody recently tried to get me in a political conversation. And I could feel an argument coming on. And so I said, well, I don't know about that. All I do know is I'm sure looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. That's what I said. Because I figured that's the only way out of this. And I said, what do you think of that? And, oh, I don't know what I think about that, they said. That's what they said. Well, I don't know. No, they said, oh, I don't know about that. But it, it killed the political talk. Because I said, I'm looking forward to the return of Jesus, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. There won't be any elections. And that killed it right there, ended it. Try it sometime. If they try to get Trump or Biden or whatever. No, no, no. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Libertarian. I'm a Christian. Okay. I mean, sure, I go vote. Bible principles and values as much as I can. But that's not what I'm about. Primarily, first, no. My front burner me 
is I'm a Christian. So I just blew them away, and the conversation ended very quickly. They were gone. <laughs> and I said, wow, that worked. I'm going to do that some more. Now, Jesus, Jesus had literally scandalized the Jews of his day. We're coming to the close here. They were outraged that he had scorned their uh, Sabbath rules that God never gave them and other regulations. They were infuriated by his claim to be God. So they rejected him. They stumbled. They tripped over him. Peter says that not everybody is scandalized by him, only those who stumble at the word. They stumble at the word. Now, in closing, he talks about those for whom Jesus is precious. But you're a chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him. Here's your why. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but are now the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. So here it is, special purpose. You're chosen. You're a chosen people. His church. You've got a special purpose. Church was born at Pentecost. It's going to be removed at the rapture. Next, sovereign priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. You're a king and a priest. Third, God's secret principality. You're a holy nation. God replaced the rebellious, Christ-rejecting nation of Israel with a holy nation. He's not done with Israel. Eschatologically, now what that means is in the future, he's not done with Israel at all. But right now, the church has replaced Israel as being the chosen nation, a holy nation. God has put them on hold for 2,000 years while the Gentiles are being reached. But now we're into Romans 9 and a lot of other stuff. I can't go there. So God, Peter reveals God's special purpose, his sovereign priesthood, his secret principality. His secret principality is the holy nation. This is a part of it right here. And finally, God's secured people. You are God's own special people. Amen? The church, you're, you're, you're heaven born and heaven bound. And no man is going to take you out of his hands. And our calling, amen, our calling is to show forth his praises. Can we lift our hands right now and show forth his praises? Our calling is to show forth his praises. Father, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. We bless you. We show forth the praises of God. We show forth the praises of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Can we just sing, God, you're so good. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. I praise you now. I praise you now. I praise you now. I praise you now. You're so good to 
What you just did is one of the reasons he called you out of darkness into light. Amen. Amen. All right. Be seated just for a moment. I'm going to take one or two questions as is my habit. We're doing great with time. Does anybody have a question about what I've shared tonight or anything else on your mind? All right. Right over here. I don't really know if there's an answer for this, but it's your thoughts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As far as I know, there's only one thing labeled as the earth. My thinking is that, you know, once all humanity is, has been removed from earth, if the earth, the mass itself, may become the new heaven and you know, almost maybe something would be almost like the Garden of Eden. Because I know yeah. that God's going to make it perfect. And, and it talks in scriptures about a lot of places that are desolate now. You know, people can't live, but people will be able to inhabit. It will be fruitful. It will be productive. It will be perfect. And I just wonder, I mean, I know it's probably not going to lay it out like that, but just kind of putting pieces together, that's just my thoughts. You're in the right Bible study because in Second Peter, we deal with this. Because Peter says, when God comes and wraps everything up, all the elements are going to burn with a fervent heat and melt. And this current earth, and, and you'll note in the book of Revelation, if you, if you go all the way through trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, the, the, the 21 judgments, when it's all done, the ecosystem is destroyed. It's a heartbreaker for me because I love the creation of God. But the ecosystem, the earth, the, the planet is, is wrecked through the judgments of God. And then God sends fire. Peter says everything is being reserved and even the elements. It's amazing how he goes into atomic theory as a first century former fisherman. But he does. He says... The atoms are going, to, are going to melt. The whole created system is going to come apart. And that is being held together right now by the word of Christ. Everything. This floor, those chairs, you. If Jesus said the word, you would fly apart. We're being held together by the word of Christ. But the day's coming. It's all going to melt. And the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Did you hear that? There's going to be a new heaven and an earth. And then it says, because the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. And that's going to be a real heavy moment in this series in Second Peter. Because this earth, as we know it, is going to melt. Okay? On the new heaven and the new earth. Yes, the redeemed. And it's heavy stuff when we get into Second Peter. That's why I'm calling it letters that burn. Because it really does end up with earth burning. <laughs> so letters that burn is appropriate. All right, anyone else? Another question? Hello. Hello. Uh, okay, so my question is um, in, well, all throughout Scripture, but mainly in um, Exodus 34 is where I saw a huge, um, I don't want to say play on words, but the Lord was A huge what? I don't want to say play on words, but okay. um, the Lord was describing himself. And he said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. 
Um, and then it goes down to say forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So he's making a distinction between the three. So I was just curious as to what that distinction okay, is. Okay, iniquity is your bent towards sin. Um, it's it's that what we talked about tonight, that tendency towards sin. That's iniquity. It's that natural pull. That's iniquity. And sin is the actual act. Okay? So you, you give in to that iniquity. You give in to that pull. And you sin. But iniquity is about the bent. The, the inclination towards it. The natural desire to break God's law. Sin is the action. So if you want to get technical, iniquity is that bent and sin is the actual action. So each of those words in Hebrew have a little different meaning. Okay? Does that help? Okay. Anyone else? I got a question. Oh, where are you? Over here. Oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> um, in your opinion, is there a difference between praise and worship? Yes. What's the difference? Well, I think uh, praise tends to be about what God has done. If you look at the Psalms, it's, I will praise you for this, praise you for that, praise you for the other. You're thanking God for what he has done. Worship is more about worshiping him for who he is, for who he is. Worship is praises, you know, and we like starting out in church with praise. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, bang the tambourine, jump around a little bit. And Sunday, by the way, I love seeing people coming down to the altar and, and praising and worshiping. And I want all of you to know you're free to come down on Sunday the minute we start. All right. So praise is more about what he has done for me. But worship is thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, O Lord. I know I can't sing, but I'm giving you an example. <laughs> to receive glory, glory and honor, glory and honor and praise. For thou hast created, that's talking about who he is. Amen. I love praise, but I love entering into that high worship. All right. Anyone else? Okay, I don't want a question here. When Jesus died on the cross, the tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints mm -hmm. that had fallen asleep were raised. What kind of bodies were they raised in? What Jesus had after the resurrection, or just like Lazarus? Okay. He's talking about from Matthew's account that when Christ died, uh, bodies of the saints, we don't know who doesn't name them. We're safe to say maybe Isaiah, Jeremiah, who knows? But Old Testament saints, luminaries, people listed in Hebrews 11, uh, God's hall of faith, um, were raised and began walking around Jerusalem. And we're not talking about return of the zombies here. They had clearly... Now, why did that happen? Hebrews tells us why. When the Old Testament saints died, Hebrews says, these all died in faith. All right, not having received the promises. What promises? Of Messiah. They knew he was coming, but they knew it was future. 
And they died believing he was coming. They died in faith in the promises of God. They went all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the prediction of the bruiser of Satan's head. Coming. So they died in faith, not having received it, but they still died in faith. God having provided better things for us that they without us could not be made perfect. So they were waiting in, this is a little complicated, but they were waiting in Hades, which had a good part and a bad part. There was good Hades, which was Abraham's bosom, bad Hades, which is where the rich man went who died in his sin. And he looked across a great chasm and he saw his former servant sitting in Abraham's bosom. And he was told, you can't cross over. It's impossible. You've died in your sins. He didn't. Well, let me go back to earth and tell my brothers about this place. And then he was told, if they don't believe that one rose from the dead, Jesus predicting his future resurrection, they won't believe you. Now, there we see that Hades had a good part, a bad part. Okay, these Old Testament saints died and went to Abraham's bosom. Their souls went to Abraham's bosom. And there they waited for the death and resurrection of Christ. So when Jesus spilled his blood, their faith was retroactive. The forgiveness of his shed blood was retroactive to them. Because they had died believing in the coming Messiah. Are you with me? So Jesus shed blood, went behind him, back this way into history, into the present, those that believed on him at that time, and all that would believe in the future. And so when they came out of the grave, it was because they had died in faith, not receiving the promise. Now the promise has happened. The Lamb of God has shed his blood for their forgiveness, and God resurrected them as a testimony that this was the Son of God. This was the bruiser of Satan's head. This was the one. All the prophets predicted. What, how were they raised and what kind of body? Had to be a resurrection body. Had to be a resurrection body because they didn't come out looking like a gross zombie. They were resurrected. And can you imagine, they're walking around in Jerusalem. Hey, it's been a long time. But it happened. Does it, are you all with me? Does that make sense? A lot of things happened when Jesus died on that cross. We could talk about it sometime. He went down into Hades and preached to them. Here's what didn't happen, and I'm going to close. He was, did not go to hell and suffer and was tormented by Satan for three days and nights. And when he came out, he was born again. Oh, no. No, 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 no. No. He didn't go to hell. When he said it is finished, guess what? In Greek, that means it is finished. Y'all are getting it. Okay, stand with me, would you?
Why'd you bring that up, Jeff? Well, because some teach that he went into hell and was, and was tormented by Satan and the demons to complete the work that he came to do. No. And when he came out, he was the first born again man. No way. Because Jesus didn't have a fallen nature that needed to be born twice. We'll get into that sometime. Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your blessing. Thank you for your power. And thank you, Lord, that we are separated by the Holy Spirit from the corruption and sin of this world. Separated by new birth. Separated by our new beliefs. And you are preparing us to see you forever. In Jesus' name.